Hello and welcome back to Face Seeking Understanding podcast. I'm Roland, this is Matt, and we're busy talking about wisdom literature or not wisdom literature, wisdom in the Old Testament. Um, so in the last episode, if you missed it, we kind of drew attention to the fact that this category of wisdom literature or thinking about wisdom literature as a distinct sort of cordoned off category in the Old Testament doesn't really make much sense and it doesn't really have much of a historical pedigree either. And so as an alternative, um, we're going to be looking at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. But before we do that, we're looking at both of them in the context in their connection to Solomon. And so we thought that the most natural place to start would be to look at the story of Solomon in 1 Kings 1 through 11. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about, maybe let's start with what happens. Yeah. So there is um, a very well-known version of the story, um, uh, a very well-known understanding of the story, maybe we should put it that way, that I think we're probably going to have to do business with. But I think what might be interesting is to how typically have you understood the story? Okay. Putting aside what I've said in previous space seeking understanding lessons, if you've listened to them, yeah, or any conversations that we've had in the interim, <laughs> yeah, how typically how was I taught of this when I was, yeah, um, or oh, how do I remember what I was taught? I don't want to put, <laughs> I don't want to hate yeah. on my teachers because yeah. they might have done it correctly for all I know. Um, okay, well, Solomon is the son of David. Uh, he, God appeared to him one day and he asked him, like, what do you want? And so he was like, I'd like wisdom. And God was like, that's a great thing to ask for. Um, and so then he becomes this, like super wise uh, king of Israel and he brings about this like golden age, literally this golden age, because it's just gold from everywhere. I think there's a phrase that says something like, in those days, silver was like stone yeah. to, to undervet, to, just to show like how much gold was on offer and, and things. Yeah. Um, and then, so it's this great age that he had ushered in um, and he built the temple as part of that, uh, which is awesome. And he like, I think they moved the capital to Jerusalem. So it's like getting a lot of the things in a place that like we really like. And then, however, in his last, in like when he got old, uh, he had accumulated a bunch of wives, and so he got kind of got weak. He related wives. <laughs> he had like I can't remember the exact numbers. It was like seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines, or something like that. Oh, I some something like something crazy. Might have been the other way around, but yeah, were lots, lots, and uh, and they eventually drew him to foreign gods, um, and so then he and, the, and towards the end of his life, he was well throughout his life, he was this great god, but then towards the end of his life, it was very much like. He turned, he turned away from the Lord and kind of cursed the kingdom to be split and all the stuff that follows on in one kings. Mm. Yeah, that's the story I know. Yeah, so that that is the way that I heard it as well. If you were right, it is 700 wives and 300 concubines. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I flipped that in my mind. Good one. Um, that That is the way that I've heard it as well, that we've got, um, we've got Solomon, who is along his life's journey, he's got... He's given wisdom by God at Gibeon. And then uh, that is all great. But then there's this moment in the narrative where there's this turn and it highlights the fact that, oh, he has married too many foreign wives, has too many concubines. And the problem with foreign wives is not their foreignness per se, mm. but the fact that they're introducing other gods um, and we're told that what Solomon is guilty of is 
worshiping these other gods and that he no longer loved Yahweh as he should have. Yeah. And so there's this rapid decline, which then leads to, like you mentioned, the split of a kingdom into uh, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. What that retelling of Solomon's story does is it puts quite a strong emphasis on that turning point Mm. and puts that in a in a chronological temporal sequence to say that solomon was doing really well and crucially solomon was very wise up until this point and then solomon you almost the way that the narrative flips it almost like at least in the way that it's retold it gives you a bit of whiplash it's like all of a sudden solomon did really very quick it's not like a gradual thing it's like he's doing great he's doing great he's doing great and then you turn over the page and it's like and then he was doing bad and you're like wait yeah. what like what happened yeah yeah and by extension not wise sure yeah and motivating that both the the wisdom over here and the not wisdom over here is this understanding of wisdom shaped by proverbs 1 verse 7 or um or maybe 9 verse 10 the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so if what Solomon is doing later on in the narrative is not fearing the Lord, but worshipping other gods, mm-hmm. that's not wisdom. Right. And so Solomon has abandoned wisdom folly. Um, one commentator has said, well, has just raised the question, maybe he wasn't even wise at all to begin with. Um, I think that's probably overstating it a bit, yeah. but you sort of get the the um, the force of the question by asking that question. Um, even if we just brush aside the details for the moment, it's sort of like, well, actually, if there is this close association between wisdom and the fear of the Lord, we're going to do business with that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's what's going on in one mm-hmm. Kings one till eleven, though. What I think, when we take a closer look, and what um, a number of scholars have noticed for quite some time now since well since at least the nine the the 90s is um maybe a little bit earlier than that but thereabouts is that when we pay a little bit closer attention to the narrative we start to see red flags and warning signs much earlier on okay what might be useful at this point before we jump into any of that is to go across to the blueprint that is used in this narrative to evaluate Solomon's reign. And that's in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17? Deuteronomy 17. So let's actually just have a read of Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. Do you want to give that a read? Sure. For those uh, wanting to read at home with us, or I will put the thing on the video, but if you, ha- if you want to look in your book, I'm looking in, uh, I'm reading in the ESV. Uh, okay, Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 24. Okay. 14 to 20. 14 yeah, to 20. 20. Okay, yeah. Fair enough. So this is Moses speaking, right, in one of his sermons in Deuteronomy. And he says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall put, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. 
and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it uh, all the days of his life, and then he shall learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Right, so in that in that passage there, it's it gives us a layout of what does the king um what what is the the king expected to do? Mm-hmm. What is his reign expected to look like? Um and so we've got a bunch of things that he's told not to do. Mm-hmm. Um those sort of make up verses fourteen to seventeen. Fourteen to seventeen. Yeah. So that's uh Make sure he's one of one, one of you guys. guys. One of the Israelites um, must not acquire many horses for himself. Must not acquire many horses, which which Solomon did. That's like don't get a lot of cars. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, or um, you could think of it in terms of military. Don't build military. Don't build okay. up a military for yourself that is not trying to be this warring nation that's going to go and um, you've, you've been given the land that Yahweh promised you. Now trust him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, then don't return to Egypt, which I think Solomon also does. Yeah. He don't. sends people back to Egypt. Well, he also marries a woman from Egypt. He also marries a woman from Egypt, and that has got some dodgy connotations, but we'll come back to that okay. in just a second. He sends people to Egypt to collect resources, I think, or something like that. I can't quite remember. Yeah. Yeah, he he sends them back to... So he, um, he accumulates lots of horses... And then he goes and buys more horses <laughs> from Egypt. From Egypt, wonderful. And then sells them at a profit. Oh, um, nice. So, okay. yeah, so he does that. And that's connected. I mean, that seems like maybe a bit of an arbitrary thing to say. But I think this is, we've got to remember this is connected in the story of the Torah where they've just come from Egypt as yeah. slaves there. And so Egypt is set up as this, like, big bad that, that they, you know, they don't want to undermine what God has done for them. He must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself and make people return to Egypt to get more of them because the Lord has told you you're not to go back that way again. Yeah. Leave that behind you in the past. Like you said, they've come out of Egypt. Don't send them back there. <laughs> A big no-no over there, and that's exactly what Solomon does. Then there's, he shall, you shall not acquire many wives for himself. And we just said he acquired 700 wives. And I think that, I think we should realize, even though that's mentioned at the end of the story, it's not like you acquire 700 wives overnight. No. Right? That's a gradual thing when you're making treaties with other nations and doing all these sorts of things. And so, like, you know, he had many times to think to himself, well, maybe maybe 150 is too many. You know? Maybe 300 <laughs> is too many. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah, he's definitely... Yeah. And then he goes overboard with the concubines, which isn't even mentioned here, but I, I feel like that's maybe implied by what's going on here. extension of how exorbitant is intelligence was and then he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold which he definitely did i think the text makes that very clear that he acquired so much gold that silver was meaningless yeah Yeah. so okay Um, Ah, so so he basically ticked off everything yeah and so pharaoh's pharaoh's um daughter there i think falls under the the foreign um the foreign wives Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. okay it says here many wives but with uh with the um explanation or his heart will be led astray. Why would it be led astray? Well, 
what the narrative highlights is that he's led astray because they come in with all these foreign gods that he's mm-hmm. tempted to worship. Which That's a theme throughout, um, particularly Deuteronomy, when they're talking about going into the land. It's like, mm-hmm. don't get caught up in these people's religion, don't take their wives from them, because yeah. you're gonna, they're going to lead you astray to their gods and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's a section early in Deuteronomy where it does address intermarriage with, um, with foreign nations and just being like, listen, this is the danger. Um, and it's a theme that's pulled through um, the Old Testament at a number of points. And, and here in 1 Kings 1 to 11, but elsewhere in Kings as well, it's a major trope that sort of runs through 1 and 2 Kings. Mm. Um, yeah, with a big question of worship. What mm. does this mean for your devotion um, to Yahweh? Now, the crucial thing, if we're coming back to, I'm just going to draw a fresh one. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're coming back to our, our mate Solomon, um, and we've got his life over here, we're ge- he's given, okay, he's got some troubles that he needs to deal with in chapters one to two. Right, yep. Um, so, there's that. But then he's given wisdom in chapter three. Where are we introduced to the fact that he starts accumulating horses or wives or gold? So I remember I was being quite I was quite struck when I read this uh, that it mentions him marrying Pharaoh's daughter really early. Yes, like that was like super early. Um, but I can't. I, I'm struggling to find it right now. But sure. Um, in chapter four already, it's talking about Solomon's daily provisions, and this guy is rolling in it. <laughs> um, he goes on to talk about um, Solomon's wisdom. Um, and then I think, is it in chapter 5? I forget now. But um, it it's fairly early on that um, we're getting this picture of this really rolling in it oh, yeah, sort of king. So Solomon chapter 4, uh, Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 26. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Casual. Already in chapter 4, we've got horses. Yeah. Which is <laughs> one chapter into his reign. <laughs> or two chapters into his reign. Which is a big cross there. Yeah. So, like, we've got... Okay, sure, wisdom's great. But... um but already we've got horses um, and, and lots of them. Um, we mentioned um, the marriage of Pharaoh's daughter. That comes up a number of times um, throughout the narrative. There's this really important moment in the middle where it highlights the, the building of the temple. And like that that's a genuine high point. I mean, well, I wanted to actually question that. Okay. Okay. So I might be reading into this, right? But if you, I, I was shocked by this, the 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 juxtaposition that the author does here. So and uh, chapter five is eighteen. It says so Solomon's builders. Uh, no, sorry, that's not right. Um, Solomon builds a temple. Is chapter six, right? So right. Let me skip forward a chapter. Um, so at the end of chapter six. So chapter six, verse thirty-eight. After having described how he builds the temple, it says, "And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull." which is the eighth month, the house was finished, that, that's the temple, in all its parts, according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it, right? right. And then the next verse, Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. Yeah. I was like, what? Yes. Yeah. So it's almost double the amount of time that he's spending on his own. Yeah. And it's a 
It's bigger. Way bigger. It's very elaborate. Yeah, it's crazy. They they have to like in the text they have to like demarcate different sections of it so that they can refer to them later. It's like what? It's nuts. So so the the building of the temple and the the high priestly prayer that'll come in chapter eight, those are genuinely positive notes. But even those are overshadowed by his indulgence. This indulgence, yeah. Um, and I remember that that's interesting because it said in the Deuteronomy passage, uh, like he mustn't be over his people or something like that, or something like that. He mustn't be lifted. His heart mustn't be lifted above his brothers. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, if you're spending twice the amount of time on God's temple as you are on, oh, sorry, on your house as you are on God's temple, I don't see how your heart isn't lifted up above your brothers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. just, yeah, that's yeah, very heavy classism. Yeah. So we've got all these moments along the way where um, Solomon's um, blunders mm. are are recorded. It's not like Solomon's failures are relegated to the last bit of the narrative, like the traditional reading has sort of made out. That yeah. Solomon was this impeccable wise king, and then oh, oh, flip, he tripped, yeah, and there he is, lying on the floor because he married too many wives. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. blunders right from the beginning. Right from as early as chapter four, um, and interestingly, you got if we've got wisdom over here in chapter three, we've got horses, we've got the palace, we've got this, we've got that, we've got the other thing, tons and tons of gold. What's interesting is that in the midst of all that, Solomon's wisdom doesn't get forgotten. <laughs> it keeps um, it keeps like it's like a beat alongside this, so it keeps saying yeah. like his wisdom grew, or he was the wisest among anyone. Like the Queen of Sheba comes and she's like, wow, this guy's really wise. And yeah, yeah. So in chapter four, it gives like a catalog of um, Solomon's wisdom to say that he was knowledgeable in all these different areas and he wrote songs and proverbs and all these different things. And it was amazing. And then chapter 10, there's this really high point where um, it talks about the Queen of Sheba coming and being blown away by Solomon's wisdom. So it's not like Solomon's wisdom is the separate piece of the narrative that's. Um, pulled away from his blunders. Mm-hmm. Um, now, mixed in is one more thing that I think is worth highlighting. When, when God gave Solomon wisdom in chapter 3, the expectation that he goes on to, to give him is that, I'll give you wisdom and I'll give you all these other things that you didn't ask for because I'm just so impressed with the fact that you asked for wisdom and not those things. Mm. I'll keep my commands. Mm. And in fact, the one thing... The one thing that is really strongly emphasized that the king is supposed to do in Deuteronomy 17 is that he needs to sit under Torah. Yeah. He needs to have a copy for himself. He needs to fear the Lord by studying Torah. That actually comes up a few times. It's not just in the beginning. He like, we'll say it again and again. It's like when he built the temple, it's like, okay, now if you follow my commandments yeah. and you're so to your children, then this kingdom's going to last forever. And then like the next thing I'm like, okay, if you keep good, if you keep doing this, yeah. then like, yeah. Yeah, so you've got this condition right there in the beginning. We've got this moment around the around the time of the temple. Um, I'm not being very precise with yeah, where I'm putting yeah. on the time. <laughs> it's just for illustrative purpose. Yeah. But there's this moment there where he's like, great, I love what you're doing here. Just remember, yeah. keep my commands. Yeah. And then right at the end, God is hot with anger because what Solomon has done is exactly the reverse. Yeah. He has not kept God's commands. He's completely flouted them. And in fact, he's gone against the command to love Yahweh alone. Yeah. And 
gone after other gods to worship them instead. This raises a, an, an interesting question. How are we supposed to understand wisdom? Yeah, in 1 Kings 1-11. If wisdom can't be equated with godliness, if wisdom and the fear of the Lord aren't even relatively interchangeable. So, because you're saying that now, just to be clear, you're saying that because while this narrative is very clearly portraying him as sinful and like, in some sense, godless, I guess, or like not fearing the Lord, you might have just noticed that we had a different lighting situation. This is, uh, we're recording this in wonderful Cape Town, South Africa, where load shedding is a regular phenomenon that we have to deal with. <laughs> so we just lost power. We just lost power. So we're going to continue um, with the natural light. Um, okay, so what we were saying, we were saying, okay, so the, the reason you're raising that question about what is wisdom is because throughout this passage, we see both the affirmation that he's wise and the emphasis that he's doing everything contrary to what God said he should do. Yeah. These things run parallel. Okay. So I think, I mean, I think that raises a problem for how we think about wisdom. We can't, it means that we can't think about wisdom as um, interchangeable with the fear of the Lord because mm -hmm. clearly while he's being wise and even sometimes in the exercise of his wisdom he's doing the reverse mm. and it was very impressive and um quite ingenious the way that he managed to turn a prophet off, off of egypt like that mm -hmm. um and in some ways it almost seems like he's got egypt under his thumbs right um and if you compare the way that solomon is portrayed here in the narrative with the royal ideals of the ancient near east he matches up with almost all of them, except for superhuman strength. Okay. Just the same that interested sure. in that. Yeah. But aside from that, I mean, wisdom is a key attribute mm. and clearly that's something that he embodies quite well. So we can't have this sort of like, they run together. It just, it, it just doesn't work. Um, that's a no-no. <laughs> um, so what is wisdom in, um, in 1 Kings 1 to 11? Well, I would suggest that wisdom is more morally neutral in the way that it's portrayed okay we've got wisdom which could be directed towards covenant faithfulness which i think is what god expected solomon to do in say one kings chapter three right he gave him wisdom now go and keep my commands um but it could also be directed towards the ancient Near Eastern royal ideal. And, and by extension, or at least in Solomon's case, it led to apostasy. Okay, so you could say something like, because what's interesting to me is that if we contrast wisdom with folly, yeah. like we know that you can't be a fool and righteous. Not in the way the Proverbs yeah. um, portrays it. But, okay, but what we're saying is, so, like, if you're righteous, you will be wise. But if you're wise, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be righteous. Is that a fair way of articulating what you're saying? That, I think, is the way that, that King seems to be talking about wisdom. Right. Yeah. It's this more neutral like actual that you're using, and then you can decide to use it in one way or the other. Yeah. And if you fear God, then you, like, in fearing God, you develop the use of that tool. The proper use of that tool but you can also just pick up the tool without fearing god and do a bunch of stuff that you're gonna like okay how you define 
what is, well, how you determine what counts as wise will determine on the telos of wisdom that you've determined. Mm -hmm. So if wisdom, if your system of, if your value system and ideals are shaped by Deuteronomy 17, shaped by the covenant, shaped by your relationship with Yahweh, then what wisdom is going to look like is covenant faithfulness. Okay. That is a wise thing to do. If um, you've got other aims in mind, like fashioning a kingdom that actually looks quite different, but is very impressive in a whole lot of other ways, if that is your ideal, then that is going to look wise to you. Okay. So it, it becomes just a bit more of a subjective term in um, in 1 Kings 1 to 11. And does this filter into then, so we're saying that 1 Kings is like forming kind of a basis of the other two books, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Yes. Does it form, would you say it forms this like ambiguity in wisdom or moral neutrality in wisdom? Would you say that forms part of the discussion in those books? Well, I think what, what it does for us is that we need to, when we come to Proverbs, we need to have a little bit more of a nuanced view of wisdom. It's right. not like we can just say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, ergo, fear of the Lord and wisdom are interchangeable, one and the same, you can't have one without the other, and that applies in every case. Right, right. What Proverbs is doing is coming with a particular vantage point and a particular set of things that the authors are trying to convince the reader of, which mm-hmm. we're going to spend some time thinking about in a future episode. Um, not necessarily a philosophical tractate on the definition and how we need to understand wisdom in its specific nuances. Okay, that makes sense. I think we're going to end there. Yeah. So that's, okay, so with that in hand then, so we, we have, having looked at then 1 Kings 1 to 11, to summarize, we have kind of realized that the story of Solomon kind of brings into question this simple equation of wisdom equals godliness. Yeah. And, and with that nuance in mind and that framing, now when you go to the Solomonic corpus, that these books that sort of are connected to Solomon, we want to um, bring that nuance along with us as we see what they have to say about wisdom and the related stuff. Yeah. All right. So for that, so what's our next thing we're going to do? Proverbs. We, yeah, we're going to turn to Proverbs next. We're wisdom's basic expression. Wisdom's basic expression. Okay. Yeah. So if you're interested in that, join us for our next episode. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining.